This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hello and welcome to the Twilight Show. Thanks for joining me. Today, my special guest is Pablo Toledo. Pablo is a teacher and teacher trainer based in Argentina. He's very much involved and interested in student assessment. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome to the Twilight Show, everyone. I'm Graham Stanley, speaking to you live from Mexico City. As I mentioned in the introduction on today's show, I'll be talking to Pablo Toledo from Argentina about assessment. Pablo Toledo is an English teacher and teacher trainer, and he holds a postgraduate advanced certificate in educational assessment from the University of Cambridge and a diploma in education policy from Universidad Torquato de Tela. Before joining Cambridge Assessment English, Pablo managed projects in the area of remote teaching, internationalization of higher education and language teaching to refugees for the British Council, and he led the education department of the Buenos Aires Herald newspaper. He is the vice president of LALTA, the Latin American Association of Language Testing and Assessment. And I'll be talking to Pablo about assessment and more after the Teachers Talk Radio News. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Bet UK is empowering the everyday wins. Cheeky grins. <laughs> big conversations. Budding aspirations. Our goal? To make edtech accessible and teaching exceptional. Join the global education community on the 24th to the 26th of January 2024 as we make education better together. Ticket off your Christmas list today. Get your free ticket before the 13th of December deadline. Visit www.uk.betshow.com forward slash visitor dash registration. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The inquest into the death of head teacher Ruth Perry has ruled that an Ofsted inspection contributed because it lacked fairness, respect and sensitivity and was, at times, rude and intimidating. These are the comments from the senior coroner, Heidi Connor. 
as reported on the BBC News website. Mrs Connor went on to express concern about the impact the inspection system can have on school leaders. This is the first time Ofsted has been listed as a contributing factor in the death of a head teacher. The coroner also issued a prevention of future death notice, a report that aims to stop similar situations arising again. Anyone who gets such a notice has 56 days to say what they plan to do to mitigate the chances of deaths happening. Education unions, Ofsted Chief Inspector Amanda Spielman and Education Secretary Gillian Keegan have all released statements following the inquest. These can be found across media outlets. A statement by Mrs Perry's sister, Professor Julia Waters, made it clear that this situation must never be allowed to happen again, but that Ruth was a much more than a victim. She was a sister, a wife and a mother. The Programme for International Student Assessment, or PISA, has released its latest findings. Making the headlines amongst the data was a figure of 11% of teens in the UK who were skipping or missing a meal at least once a week as a result of poverty. The average was 8%, although it rose to 13% in the USA and to 19% in Turkey. The report makes the link between missing meals and less effective learning. Every four years, PISA compares 15-year-olds' reading, science and maths levels across 81 countries. The director of the project described the UK as being in a fairly good spot, with improvements in reading and maths, although there was a decline in science. Amongst the four home nations, England performed the highest across all three subjects, although the average maths score fell for all UK nations. The gap in results between UK nations has widened, with Wales recording its worst results so far, according to the BBC. The Welsh Education Minister said COVID-19 had derailed improvement. Northern Ireland scored higher than Scotland in maths and science, but Scotland did better in reading. The Wellbeing Survey is the first of its kind, with the Head of Research expressing surprise that so many pupils in a supposedly wealthy country are missing meals due to food poverty. Another survey, this time by the British Council, has also seen its results released. They asked just over 2,000 pupils at the end of their first year of secondary from across the UK about modern foreign languages. The results showed that only 20% planned to study a language at GCSE. The numbers of pupils taking modern foreign languages has been in decline in recent years. While 73% of those taking part in the survey said children should have the chance to learn language and 46% said they enjoyed language learning, more than one in four said that they did not plan to take the subject at GCSE level or beyond. Nearly nine out of ten said they did not think it was very likely that language would be necessary for their future career. Finally, writer and poet Benjamin Zephaniah passed away on the 7th of December at the age of 65. He had been diagnosed with a brain tumour eight weeks ago. Zephaniah had 14 poetry collections and five novels published over the years. He openly discussed his difficulties with learning to read and write, leaving school at 13 and his diagnosis of dyslexia. His first book was published in 1980 and he described himself as an angry young man who had an outlet through writing. He said that using writing as expression had saved his life. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. 
Welcome back, everyone, and welcome in particular to my special guest, Pablo Toledo. Thank you so much for joining me, Pablo. How are you? Thank you, Graham, for the invitation. Always a pleasure. How have you been today? What have you been up to? Not much else going on today, uh, but it's a lovely pre-summer day here in Argentina, so it's always it looks like it's going to be a great weekend. Yes, of course. I I I, I forget that uh, actually December and January are probably the nicest months to be in your part of the world as far as the weather's concerned, isn't it? Yes, and and you have this lovely irony where most of the advertising and Christmas movies and and all of the icons show snow and Santa Claus wearing fairy <laughs> clothes, but it's thirty five forty degrees. <laughs> Yes, I remember. Um, I remember when I lived in Uruguay, going to the shopping centres, and there was kind of like all this snowy, Christmassy things, and outside it was like you know, really hot, and everybody was on the beach. Absolutely, and we also have this thing where most of the European immigrants brought their Christmas food, and we just kept it. So we have <laughs> great winter food in the middle of summer, which is yeah. a, a heart attack waiting to happen. Yeah, definitely. So Pablo, I um. I usually start by asking my guests to talk about how they became involved in education, how they become teachers. So I'd love to hear it. What hear what was uh, what was what it was that attracted you to education? How you became a teacher? It was I like some people, like some of the people who've been guests on the show. When you ask this question, I got here by chance. So mm. it was it was it was a series of fortunate events in the end. Mm. Uh, I wasn't great at English as a kid. I, I started learning English sort of older. Uh, and I just got some really bad lessons at, at the primary school where I was going, starting when I was nine, when I was 10. And I wasn't great at it. My mother had to drag me kicking and screaming into a language school when I started secondary school. Uh, there's a there's a legend that someone that I knew professionally later was the head was the director of studies and that I went into her office sort of refusing to go and looking sulky with my mom saying you're coming here whether you like it or not <laughs> and at some point in the middle of that when I was sort of ending my secondary school I got kind of the a knack for it sort of it started making sense then I made friends with someone who's still my best friend today uh, with Guillermo and he was a huge Beatles fan and his mom was a famous English teacher here in Argentina so he had big a bit, lots of books and lots of motivation and stuff around the house so we started sort of by I started tuning into English from a place that was more like we love Beatles together and sort of he shared like the first books that I read in proper English were books that he gave me which were like analysis of Beatles lyrics and stuff like that uh, and then I started getting better at it. And when, by the time I finished secondary school, uh, I also won a trip for a one month course in Brighton, sort of like a three week course in Brighton in one of these academies, which was like the, the language school where I was going because my grades were good. They had a raffle between like people who had good grades in the course. And so I won that uh, and that kind of sealed the deal. I was, I was, I was into English. So I wasn't going to study to become a teacher, but literally, I mean, on a classes here in Argentina start in March. So on a February day, I was out with friends and a friend told me tomorrow I'm starting a sort of pre a preparation course for a language for a for an English teacher training college because there was an entrance exam and they had just a, a one month course to prepare you for the admission. I didn't even know the name of the institution. I said, what's that? I said, oh, you should try that. My plan at that stage is that I was going to start 
sort of is that I was going to become a journalist. I was going to study at university mm -hmm. communications, and my plan was to become a journalist. But so on that that was a sat that was a Sunday at nine p.m. So mm -hmm. course starts tomorrow at eight. You should come. I said why wow. not? I mean, like it's an it's an English course. It's this place, and then I just showed up. And I did the course and I started the course. I did really well. I sailed through the entrance exam. And then I told my friend, hey, I'm going to this place. Oh, that's, and then I told my best friend, I'm, I, I, there is this place. He said, yeah, I'm going to study there as well because my mom is a teacher there and it's a great place. It turns out to be the Joaquin B. Gonzalez, which is sort of a famous historical teacher training institution. I didn't even know how to spell the name <laughs> of that. Uh, and then I just showed up and that was it. Uh, I, I cancelled my plans to become, I cancelled my plans to study communications at university on my first day of teacher training. I had my first language and phonetics and things. I had my first classes, lessons and I said, this is serious. This takes dedication. This is not a language course. And this is what I want to do. Mm -hmm. And, and things flowed from there. I took a few, quite a few turns in my career sort of career-wise, I've done a number of things, uh, which led me to the place where I am today, which is that I'd, I haven't been in front of a classroom in a while. Mm -hmm. But, and I have done several things connected with that. I mean, funnily enough, I mentioned that my plan was to become a journalist. For 10 years, I worked in an English language newspaper. I started there as an, as an educational publisher and inventing an education section and an education department for that newspaper. So I turned up, I ended up where I wanted to be, originally yeah. from a different place and then i got back to doing other things connected with teaching but so i'd love to could you talk a little bit more about how you ended up in the buenos aires herald in the buenos aires um, herald sure i it's uh so i started it started with a post on a on an email newsletter uh because there was were you working sorry were you working as a teacher before that after you finished Teach training college. So after I finished in my last years, I was working all over the place. I was doing in company training. I was working mm -hmm. secondary schools. I was anywhere that would have me. I was working right. at the Asociación Argentina de Cultura Inglesa, which is a big language school. But I was a teacher, the kind of I get up at half past seven. My first lesson starts at 8 a.m. and I'm teaching until nine in the evening. So I was doing that life. Right. Uh, and the one thing I never got the knack of was working with young learners, but everything else I tried at some point. Uh, and I was beginning to get interested in teacher training. So I was an assistant at a literature course for teacher training, and I was preparing for that. I was doing many, many things. And I wrote a post at News and Views, which was a newsletter published by Martin Ayres, mm. uh, who ended up working for IATEFL, who's still uh, and who was based in Argentina. And it was a post about, um, it was it was called Howl. Funnily enough, it ended up quoted by Jeremy Harmer in his handbook for language teachers, which is kind of my <laughs> claim to fame in the ELT literature, that I have one reference by Jeremy Harmer. Uh, mm. And it was like, uh, it was based on Alan Gimbel's Howl. Mm -hmm. I have seen the best minds of my generation. And it was a big rant about how much I hated the idea that the big Illuminati of ELT were all people who were coming from the international houses or sort of like the big institutions, uh, which were like backpacking Brits or uh, native speakers yeah. telling people like me, 
bottom of the southern hemisphere, how it should be done when I have yeah. 35 kids in a private, in a public primary school right. in front yeah. of me or, sec or secondary school there. And it was this rant about that. It started, it got posted in the newsletter. I put a bit of flair into it because I was following. I have seen the best teachers of my generation, their lesson plans bleeding. It is floating on the internet somewhere. And then he published it and he liked it. And he said, would you like to extend that? And then he put it on the journal version of that. And that got seen by someone at the Buenos Aires Herald who said, you obviously have a knack for writing. On the side, I've always done writing workshops. I have a side career as a, as a, as a literary writer. And so... I put a bit of that panache into it. And then the, they contacted me and said, we like the way you write. Would you like to do something for the newspaper? Originally it was, and I said, yeah, anything. And he said, well, we're interested in this educational technology thing. And we're talking about 1999. So most people didn't have internet. So it was a, I started with a column, which was 200 words a week on uh, some website or tech resource uh, that got in the newspaper. And then I started from there. They started giving me like other assignments. I started sort of saying, I would like to do this. I would like to do that. Uh, there is this person coming. Would you be interested in an interview to someone in ELT? And because it was an English language newspaper, English teachers were like natural readership. So it flowed from there. And then it became bigger and bigger over in the course of four years. The person that brought me on left. So I got in charge of the sort of the education department, which was like one weekly page and then some kind of supplements and it grew from there we had write on which is one of the projects i've ever i've done that i'm the proudest of which was a magazine for teenagers in english written by teenagers so i was wow. basically the pub the the editor in charge of a newsroom if you like of 15 16 17 year olds which were doing it voluntarily and did the most amazing magazine you've ever read it was professional. It was dedicated. They, the, the degree of commitment and professionalism is the most I've seen. And I worked in a professional newsroom at the time. And then wow. over time, I ended up sort of doing education. Then the newspaper changed courses and I became the cultural entertainment editor. And I did that for a few years. So working in a newsroom like The Journalist Life, which mm -hmm. was my original career plan. And then I, and then I started, I was teaching alongside but uh, and then I said I want to go back to something more connected with teaching which is when I started sort of and I found a way back into the kind of work uh, that I liked uh, working for the British Council sort of doing more things like project management I found this weird thing I was listening to one of your to one of the guests one of the past guests guests in the podcast talking about how she had seen uh, somebody doing a presentation at a t in teacher training and yeah. finding that that was a place they wanted to be. I found that that was a place I wanted to be, but also I started working with professional associations pretty early on in my career, organizing conferences, being a volunteer and that. So I found that every time I went to an ELT event, I gravitated towards standing at the back of the room, helping out the organizers. So <laughs> I, I found that uh, I liked this idea of setting up the thing and planning the thing and sort of do, making things happen and being around the audience as much as I enjoyed being in the audience for these things. So I found a place, sort of, I found my way, I gravitated towards doing that more, which is what, which is a bit of what I'm doing now. Wow, that's really interesting. I didn't know a lot of that. So thanks for sharing that.
it's um, yeah, it's been a winding it's been a winding road. Uh, sort of, it, it's taken quite unexpected turns along the way, but it's it's been fun. Yeah, I think that's the case for most people that I speak to. Um, it's very rare that someone plans to do something and that's what they end up doing all of for all yeah. of their life, etc. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it's. I've got my, I've I've got two kids and my daughter now. She started university this year, so my one piece of dad advice for her career planning wise was, because she was kind of, am I choosing the right thing for me? Is this is this what I want? Obsessing about that, which is what you do, because you're a teenager, you're deciding yeah. your life. It's it is a big deal, yeah. and I said, don't worry. I mean, just look at me. Look at all the things I've done in the middle. I ended up take to I did like four different careers and I did them all wrong. I ended up where I am. I'm happy <laughs> with the things I've done. I wouldn't be happier if I had just done one of those things and stayed yeah. on the tracks. So whatever you do, there's always time to shift course and find your own way. Yeah, that's good advice, I think. Definitely. So Pablo, you're you're working with assessment now. You work for uh Cambridge. So What's your I work role for exactly? Cambridge. Uh, Cambridge University Press and Assessment, and my role is something called Assessment Services Manager, which right. is basically um, connected to, I mean, the fact that I am kind of, uh, it's a bit like assessment is a difficult product in the sense that we think of, I mean, many teachers think of assessment as there is this exam and I just mm -hmm. get my get my students to do it, or many people in a school say, yeah. Uh, yeah. there is this exam that exists, call it what you will, it's done by Cambridge or anyone else, but I will just bring the exam in, and that's the exam I need. Uh, yeah. Or, But the thing is that many, many of the people that run institutions that make big decisions based on assessment, many of many teachers, the training and understanding of assessment and how it integrates with the thing that they're doing is not that great. Uh, because teacher training is not really strong in assessment. Assessment mm. is a very technical area. So my role is kind of to stand in the middle of that. So I do a lot of teacher training. I go to many teacher conferences. I do lots of sessions for teachers on how assessment works, how the particular assessment that Cambridge does works and how it integrates, but also working with institutions and other partners, let's say stakeholders, uh, on how assessment can integrate into their curriculums, into their programs, into the decisions they're making. What are sort of a kind of assessment-based analysis of how it works? And also on the more, many of the people that design assessment are by necessity very technical about assessment because assessment is a very technical area in itself. But, and I am kind of a translator from one to the other into, with a, I have one foot in pedagogy, another foot of being on the ground, sort of work, having yeah. been a classroom teacher, working with classroom teachers and schools. But also I understand enough about assessment that I wouldn't be able to do an assessment from scratch without a lot of extra training. But I have done sort of studies in assessment specifically, I, uh, uh, which allow me to kind of translate, to tell an assessment person to understand assessment from a technical perspective and see how it fits into the classroom, but then to be able to tell someone who is in the classroom or running an institution or running an education system, how so what kind of assessment decisions can help them. If you do this, it's going to imply that, that kind of thing. So it's a mixture of, uh, um, I've been compared by people who worked in tech to an architect's solution, whatever that is. 
So I'm going with that. <laughs> okay. So a lot of your work then um, is around perhaps what we would say would, is assessment literacy. So, um, Definitely. Most of the work is basically assessment literacy for teachers, assessment uh, literacy for institutional leaders. And sort of that's kind of become my mission and sort of in sort of personally, professionally, I feel that that is a thing that we need a lot more of that right. a lot of the things that many things, both in language, in assessment and in the way assessment has an impact on the way people learn language and in education in general come from not enough assessment literacy. Yeah. So I think it's a worthy, I think, it, I think it's very necessary. Oh, definitely. From what I've seen, I think it's really necessary. I think a lot of teachers, a lot of institutions uh, still believe, I think, uh, although you would you would know a lot better than me, that assessment is kind of either a necessary evil or something that you kind of bolt on at the end, which is not really the case to get the most out of assessment. No. You need to build it in from the beginning and you need to have a kind of more balanced idea of what it is, don't you? Absolutely. And it becomes a very, almost an ideological thing or a culture. I mean, there is, uh, I work, my role is uh, a more like half regional role. So I work mm -hmm. with a number of countries. So sort of, uh, so I, I am lucky that I can, that I get to work for a British organization. Mm -hmm. So there is a bit of this kind of European and specifically British culture where assessment is really embedded in education systems, where mm. the idea is that there isn't really a curriculum, a strong curriculum as such in the UK, or there isn't a strong monitoring of what the schools teach. Everything is done through assessment, because of course, you sit through different rounds of assessment in the UK education system, wherever in, I mean, well, Different countries in the UK work differently. The Welsh is not the Scottish is not the is not the English, but uh, whatever you do, there's always an exam that comes at eleven. There's an exam that comes at fifteen. There's an exam that comes well, and there is this sense that assessment comes. It's a it's a fact of life, and it's how you do it. But there is this cultural place for assessment in education that is very specific that happens in many countries around the world. Well, I happen to have been educated and live in cult in in a country that has the exact opposite of that. Argentina has zero standardized assessment. Latin America in general is very opposed to the idea of standardized assessment as a default position, with the possible exception of countries like Chile or Colombia. Uh, and I'm thinking South America now. Mm. Mm, there is no country that has like a standardized secondary primary secondary school standardized external government mandated testing system and actually the view that teachers have and that's the view that i was trained on in my teacher training and all of my colleagues is that external uh, external assessment standardized assessment is the devil and that standard <laughs> and that assessment is a necessary evil but yeah. especially when you do it when you do it when when you have someone who is not the teacher when it is not classroom that it is the absolute worst thing you can have and so going back to your question of assessment literacy and the, these beliefs about assessment, they really shape what happens in education. And I've, I am lucky enough that I get to work with nine different countries directly. So everything south of Colombia, except for Brazil. So that's nine countries that I work with hands on. Mm. Uh, 
and working for a UK organization. So I see all of these assessment cultures and all of the things that happen with one thing, with another thing, and what one can bring into the other. And what I see all, all over in the places that have a strong sort of default belief that standardized external assessment is the only thing there is, and in the places that have a strong belief that that is the devil, etc., etc., is that still in all of those contexts, people don't understand enough about assessment to really see the potential that assessment has and the impact that the assessment decisions they make, whatever they are, have in what happens in the classroom and in the lives of people. Yeah. in the actual lives of students which is sort of like the most important thing in the language that they learn but also in their opportunities in life because we think of well it is a thing that is going to allow you to have a better sort of flow or a better journey as a language learner but also in the case of assessment if you don't get if you don't pass certain exams your life plans will change. If you don't pass a C1 exam and you're planning to study abroad, you're not going to study abroad because the language requirement, you may have to pass that exam as a language requirement. If you fail that exam, you will have to delay your plans. I mean, I always mention the case of Brazil and uh, science without borders. Sort of there was this, mm, during the first Lula government in Brazil, we're, we're getting, of course, we're getting further and further away from okay, the classroom, so interrupt, interrupt me when you like. But uh, in, the, in the first Lula government, I mean, in Latin America, the thing is, the thing with education is there's never any money. Well, right. when Lula first came to government, he said, yeah, there's money, and we're going to use it to internationalize our universities, our students, our teachers, our mm -hmm. everybody. So I want tens of thousands of Brazilian students, uh, university students, university professors, researchers, everybody to just go all over the place. And the, the federal government will fund, will fund you to go and sort of be embedded in universities all over the world, research institutions all over the world, and just bring that back to Brazil and we will take it from there. And what happened was that about 75% of the people who applied wanted to go to Portugal. No, Portugal is a cool place <laughs> for the to language, be, basically. But, <laughs> but, but that's basically because that's where university, but that's where everything happens in Portuguese. It's a different, it's a different the dialect of Portuguese. They, Portuguese and Brazilians claim they don't understand each other very well, but it cannot be that bad. <laughs> uh, so it was better than going somewhere where they were going to speak English and you had zero English. So what came out of that is that the fact that they didn't have a language policy and that they didn't have an assessment policy for language meant that everybody was literally unable to take up those opportunities and that had an impact in the development of, of the program what came out of that was that lang science without borders became language without borders it was basically if we don't do if we don't take care of this and if we don't do not just a language policy but a certification policy an assessment led policy we are not going to be able to get anything out of it we are not going to be able to make this happen uh, so, if you don't make the right assessment decisions early on, you may find that the knock-on effect of that, even at that massive scale, is huge. Now, so on a personal level, on a, on a, on a nationwide level, making sort of the lack of an understanding of how assessment works, what assessment can bring, and why you, will, why you may need it, 
can have all kinds of knock-on effects, personally, classroom, school-based, nationwide. So I think that's, I mean, I keep, every time I talk about this, I bring up Science Without Borders because that is a class, that is a textbook case of an opportunity wasted because of the language policy was not there, the assessment policy was not there, and basically people were not ready. And when you talk to people who work in higher education, the story of mm, the brilliant student who had the opportunity to go on a scholarship but needed, but had like a three-week window for an application that included a language, a language certificate that they didn't have is a classic one. It happens anywhere you ask, uh, at least Latin America. Uh, so making sure that that doesn't happen is one of my missions. <laughs> Yes, that's, that's fascinating. I, I love that example. That's a great one. Um, Pablo, what in your experience and having knowledge of a lot of countries in the region, where do you think they are getting it right? Where, you know, this idea of um, having appropriate assessment solutions, standardized testing, but not overly. Uh, um, relying upon a test, for example, either nationally or mm -hmm. regionally, etc. Where do you think they have got the kind of balance right that you've seen, or isn't there anywhere at the moment? <laughs> there is no magic trick. I mean, uh, it different different ways of doing it work for different places. So, right. so uh, it's contextual, in Latin America, it's it, it's very contextual uh, and. There are ways of getting everything right and there are ways of getting everything wrong. I mean, you talk to people in places that are very standardized assessment led. I mean, I'm pretty sure if you ask 100 teachers in the UK how they feel about assessment, they will not say that the UK gets it right. Mm -hmm. They will. There are horror stories everywhere you right. look. Of course. Uh, and, and something similar in the US. I mean, the US has a similar assessment culture and which, which is complicated by the fact that there are 50 different education systems. Well, actually, it's more muni it's even municipal-led, which makes it even diff more <laughs> difficult to, to get. But uh, looking at Latin America, uh, Colombia, has an in Colombia is in an interesting position because Colombia has an institution called ICFES. And they made a decision years ago, which amazingly for Latin America has held on, uh, <laughs> which to have to shape, to start, I'm not going to say from scratch, but from kind of scratch, uh, an assessment, uh, an assessment institution that was going to look at education as a whole and how the country is doing, and that they were going to get to develop the expertise and to have the set policies that were going to enable them to sort of profit from that. And ICFES does a number of things for Colombia. Not all Colombians will agree that all the things that they do are particularly brilliant, mm -hmm. but they have developed competency exams in different areas which are used for progression from secondary into university for things like university admission. Uh, they have developed a language exam of their own and they developed a department that was able to do that with assistance from other organizations, which is really interesting and which has a place. And then they have embedded sort of external certification for languages specifically at different key places. So it's an interesting blend, not going all the way into European or American style or Asian style sort of thing, because we always forget that 
the sort of the people who invented, let's say, the the first sort of some of the first examples of uh, places where assessment was the basis for progression in life was China. I mean, Confucian Confucian culture was based on big, very high stakes assessment for opportunities in life to get admission to university to working for the empire sort of to become like a government official to, to get opportunities um but i digress uh <laughs> colombia gets it colombia has an interesting position which is kind of in between with a with one pretty firmly planted foot on a standardized assessment thing chile is closer to has has that as well although it has had a strong resistance, a strong backlash against that. So now CIMSE, which was sort of their uh, evaluation institute, has come under fire for a number of for a number of reasons with the education reforms and the resistance in the past four or five years. So it's in flux and they but they haven't chucked it out the window. They haven't said, even though there has been a lot of resistance against some of the effects that that had in Chile, uh, they haven't come to a place where they say we're going to do away with assessment. So Chile, Colombia are interesting places to, to look at uh, in terms of a kind of blend of these things, of the, of the countries I know. Uh, Uruguay is, of course, in an interesting place because it, in language assessment, because they have, together with programs like Say Valen well Inglés, which you may have heard of, or uh, with some of the initiatives that they had in terms of language policy, uh, from the beginning, they said, we need to assess the impact of this. And they started bringing in different form, forms of external assessment. Uh, for, and they have offered in public education um, external assessment for languages for pretty much everybody in the, in the education system that would like to have it. And they have eventually, sort of over years, done the heavy lifting of developing an, uh, an assessment tool of their own for a specific need that they have. They said, we need this thing in this way for this program with these purposes. It doesn't exist. It's not there. It's not something that we could just bring in ready-made. Okay, what does it take to do it? And it took a, long, a lot of work and they did all the work. Uh, they worked with the right people and they made all, and they held it on over years. It's, and they developed a tool of their own, which they started implementing pros and cons to everything you do. So I could give you a list of pros and a list of cons on, on, on that of that particular thing, but and of that particular path. But it's mm, but that's an interesting country in terms of applying an interesting language policy and understanding that without an assessment sort of pillar, that thing was not going to work. If they were not able to demonstrate how the thing worked and understand how the thing worked then that was not going to happen. So Uruguay, Colombia, and Chile are interesting places to look at in, in Latin America uh, of where assessment is, is a bit different, sort of where they think of assessment as an interesting blend of the, the, the teacher is the only assessor or external is the only assessor. They found an interesting in between. Interesting. And what about outside the region? Are there any sort of examples? You mentioned China before. Of, of where you think uh, there are interesting developments and assessment that are showing uh, the right way to go? I think the uh, some of the things that happen, I mean, it gets a lot of stick 
from a lot mm -hmm. of places, but the, the idea and the impact of uh, the common European framework of reference for languages is yeah. a good example of how everything comes together. It gets a lot of stick because, well, it's people think of that as a list of things to do and it orders people and it streamlines you and then it's the basis for everything and it's commercial and it's this and it's that. It's none of those things. I mean, the project that started the Common European Framework has its basis on let's let's build a tool for international for international development. Let's build a tool to enable people to live their lives beyond the beyond their borders. Uh, mm. And in that sense, it has had an amazing effect. Uh, the Common European Framework has sort of people criticize it for all kinds of things. A common a common criticism in Latin from some Latin Americans is it says European in it. Like it brings embedded a <laughs> yeah. lot of European ideas and I, and and that is true to some extent. I mean, it is a it is competence based which not everybody loves. And it is geared at things like internationalization of higher education and cross borders employability which may not be the only reason. Uh, if you look at the more advanced levels, if you look at C1, for instance, C1 is a, is a great example of a level that was designed with one thing in mind, which is admission to postgraduate studies. And a lot of that, now, can you be an, a, we, are there advanced users of language that do not want to be university students? A lot of them. Are they 100% served by the standards of the C1 level? Honestly speaking, maybe not. Uh, but I mean, it doesn't do the whole thing for everybody. Yet, the Common European Framework has allowed for a great use of assessment, which is, and a great and sort of does a, a great service to basically the world, which is you can say there is such a thing as B2 level of any language and there is such a thing as a C1 and an A2 level of any language. We can, we can define it for that language, something like the English Profile Project in, in the case of English, but also things that the Instituto Cervantes has done for Spanish, that Alliance Francaise has done for French and so on. Uh, you can define it for different languages in terms of vocabulary, grammar, this, that, whatever. Uh, you can test it. You can find ways of testing it better in one way or other. It's open enough that you can test it in different ways. It is specific enough that you can test it. Uh, and you can use it as an international shared language, as a framework. Now, that is an amazing use of assessment. That is an amazing service of assessment for the lives of people, that you can get a certificate in any language for B1, B2, C1, whatever, and that you can understand what it, in, what it brings you in terms of, I can apply to this university, I can work here, my language is enough to do that, or even things like, there are graded readers and I'm able to access this, or this is what it should imply. That is really very useful and in terms of assessment it has opened doors for many uses of assessment which have actually helped the lives of people has every use of assessment that comes from that helped the lives of people well nothing's perfect uh, but it's it's a good sort of it's it's a good it's a good example mm. now yeah. if you look internationally i think the the interesting 
the things that would make something interesting in terms of assessment or something useful is where basically three things happen. Basically, where you have something where you have enough stand enough enough of something that is standardized that you can understand that you can sort of apply it consistently that you, that everybody knows what they're talking about and doing kind of the same thing because if you don't that's not fair and that's not right uh, but then when you have enough empowerment of the teacher and the institution that they are not locked by the assessment structure and where it is useful in the context, where it makes sense in the context where that happens. Often we tend to ignore one of these three things. So if you just adopt something international without thinking about it, because that's the exam that the world uses, it may not make sense in your context. Yeah. If you do something that is fully classroom based, it may not help sort of when your students leave your school. If you do something fully external, then it may not make sense for your school. Or your context or both so it's where those three things happen that's what makes it interesting yes definitely i mean it, it's a lot i remember teaching before the cefr was fully in place or used uh, a lot um and it made it very difficult to compare between different languages uh, because each of the languages had its own way of measuring it and they you had to look at sort of different charts that other that some people or organizations have mapped to be able to see how to compare, you know, your use of Spanish with use of English, et cetera, et cetera, wasn't it? Yeah. It was a and nightmare. Even, yeah. And where it's not applied, I mean, Latin America is a place where the common European framework is used by some countries, but not for everything. And other countries openly don't use it. And you still have things like, they define things like level one, level five, uh, pre-intermediate, advanced, and no one quite agrees what that means. In some countries, I've seen it in Colombia and Mexico, uh, you see things like job ads where people are expected to have 70% English, <laughs> which is fascinating because what, what's that even suppo what's that supposed to mean? I don't think I've got 70% English and, uh, you know. There you go. So, <laughs> yeah. And what is the difference between 70, 75 and 40? So uh, <laughs> where it... Where, but and so and and the other thing is that standards are very useful i mean we think of assessment in terms of english because that's what we do we teach english but think of the other kinds of assessment like uh getting a a, a driving exam is a form of assessment mm -hmm. uh professional licensing is a form of assessment and it yeah. is true as teachers we have this we have this tendency to think well we won't, we we are too we are sometimes too student-centered. So we think, oh, poor student. So we have to define things in terms of your individual learning journey. We have to de define a form of assessment that is going to be friendly to you and all that. But let's do, let's do doctors. Now, imagine that you have a student-centered medical licensing board. So they say, oh, because you went to the, because this is how the, you have made amazing progress as a, as a doctor. Uh, you can do most things that a doctor can do and you have made amazing progress from where you started to where you are and you've put in a lot of effort this is the best doctor you can be we'll give you a license even though you don't have the skills it takes to be a doctor <laughs> yeah would you go would you feel safe as a patient would you feel safe as a patient going to a hospital if that were the case or when we think well we want to uh, things i mean the knock-on effect of things like 
again, another classic example is uh, uh, pilots. Because some people say, well, you don't necessarily have to master everything in the syllabus to, to get, I mean, you may want to get partial certification. You may want to acknowledge the fact that I went to, a, to that I didn't have the opportunity to develop this particular skill. Okay, uh, you are a pilot. You have you know how to do everything a plane needs to do except land it. So we'll give you a license <laughs> because it's just that one thing you don't know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's sometimes it, it it is important to have those hard and fast things because. It matters. Yeah. But then I guess I think the reason why assessment sometimes has a bad rap, if you like, is because uh, all of us have grown up and have feared the test, the exam. Yeah. And also mm -hmm. when when education becomes sort of driven by passing an exam to take it to an extreme, um, which has happened uh, I'm sure you've seen it. I've seen it. Um, then it becomes something that uh, all, almost becomes meaningless, but it also can lead to a lot of stress and a lot of negative reactions from students. And I think that's probably where things Absolutely. in the past have gone wrong. In the past and in the present. I mean, we mm. we know that that's still the case for many people. Now, it is true. I mean, is it fair that uh, 12 years in the life of someone who's been through primary, secondary school are defined by what I do one afternoon or yeah. one morning when I sit for that one exam. So, no, I cannot really, I mean, we can't, that is one extreme. Uh, so, and that's not actually assessment. That is one specific way of doing testing. You can mm -hmm. have portfolios which acknowledge my journey through the through that you can have that one day moderated modulated be one more data point mm -hmm. in in my assessment strategy and that i think is the ideal thing i mean we're so continuous assessment basically continu continuous assessment but or an integration of the two because also continuous assessment alone will not give you that integrated thing I mean, if you think of language specifically, all of the things that, I mean, yes, it is true. I mean, writing a 400 word essay in one sitting. So grab your pens. This is your subject. Write 450 words. You have 60 minutes. Uh, and then we will grade that. It is true. That is not. So we know that to do that, you need to be able to do a number of things that you develop over time. And you can look at those individually through continuous assessment. So I can look at the way you organize texts. I can look at the way you've done, you have acquired language and tools and the work that you have done over years. I could be assessing those things in the classroom individually and add that up and get a good picture of where you are still. If I don't ask you to sit down and do the essay, I don't know if you can integrate those things. Yeah. I don't know that you can do that task. So there is a point to having that exam. There is a point to having all of that, that summation, sort of all of those things put together in one day. I don't think it should be the be all, start all and end all of it, but I think it's got a place. And many people because of the rejection of the system where that exam is the only thing that matters move to the idea that that exam shouldn't exist 
I think that should exist. It just shouldn't be the only thing. Uh, what... It should be used for some things, mm -hmm. but it shouldn't be the only thing. And what about the role of formative assessment? So this idea of um, assessment doesn't have to be summative. It can be formative. No. It can be assessment for learning rather than of learning. How do you feel Absolutely. that fits in? And I think it fits in. I mean, first of all, we need to acknowledge that without assessment, there is no learning. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, think of a child, think of a baby, a toddler, uh, learning, to, learning to walk or try making, sort of learning to take its first steps. How do babies do that? Well, they stand up, they do it a number of times, they try to do it, they fall over, they try to do it, they fall over, they try to do it, they fall over. Now, it's this repetition. Now, if you have repetition without some kind of analysis of what happened, some kind of judgment of what happened, and then some kind of, okay, I will try this different thing next time, or I will not do that thing that failed, then we wouldn't learn to walk. If you look at definitions of learning, learn that the thing that distinguishes mindless repetition from actual learning is the analysis of what we did towards an improvement. I mean, and uh, take any learning theory you like. I mean, I am by heart sort of my soul is constructivist. So I think of Vygotsky most of the times. But think of any learning theory you like. Even things like, I mean, even a very behaviorist one is about transforming your behavior based on outcome analysis. Uh, but the, the constructivist view is that it's a reflective process done in a dialogue with a mentor or someone as a reference, blah, blah, blah. But learning includes assessment learning sorry sorry assessment is embedded in learning assessment makes learning so a teacher is assessing all the time formatively speaking the interesting thing when you when you start reading up on formative assessment is how much of what a teacher does in a regular classroom is actually categorized and classified and described as a formative assessment technique when you think of something like questioning okay teachers make questions that's the job they make questions all the time. They lead conversations. Those are formative. That's a form of formative assessment. Uh, you think of something like a classic formative assessment strategy, traffic lights. So where you give students like a red, uh, red, yellow, green uh, signs or something or a thumbs up or thumbs down. And then you say, what is your understanding of this? Or would you, you and then you ask questions and then they, they, ray, they, they bring up the thing. The, the the color, the red, the sort of the traffic light color for where, where they are. That is, a for, that is formative assessment. We do that all the time as a teacher. Uh, you give your students, a, you ask your students a question, you're looking at their faces and you're making decisions about what you're going to do next based on do they look like a, they get this or do they look puzzled or do they look frustrated or do they look what? That is an assessment, that is a moment of assessment. I mean, the most interesting definition of assessment I found is uh, that assessment is basically gathering evidence about student performance, whatever kind of evidence you want, analyzing that evidence. So uh, making a judgment about it, about making a judgment about what our students know or what our students can do based on my analysis of that evidence, and then making a decision 
based on that analysis. So I gather evidence. My evidence can be the results of a, of a very long exam, or it can be the way their faces look right now. Then I analyze it. Okay, this means they pass, they don't pass, they get this, they get that. Then I judge what they know or what they can do based on it. If they look frustrated, it means they cannot do it. If they look, oh, teacher, it looks like they, they can do it and I can move on. If they just give me a correct answer, it means this. Or if past 60% of the, if they have correct answers for 60% of this, if they show competence to this rubric, whatever you do. And then you make a decision based on that. Then you make a judgment and then you make a decision. Then you change your syllabus or you pass them or fail them or you uh, give them one more example of simple past versus present perfect or move on to the next unit. Or then you decide to include a review activity to give them extra homework to, to do whatever you do. Assessment is a, is a tool for making decisions. Now, that definition applies to formative assessment, summative assessment, any assessment. And where the magic is, where the beauty is, is in bringing it all together. I have seen this described as integrated learning and assessment, assessment for learning, assessment of learning with the assessment research group, Paul Black, Dylan William, um, connected learning systems with Barry O'Sullivan, learning-oriented assessment with Nick Saville and others, and more of the European sort of common European framework philosophy of thought. There's a lot of ways of looking at this. But assessment as an activity is something that teachers do every minute the, that we're teaching. It happens all the time. So if we don't integrate, if we think of assessment as testing, then that's, that's a problem. If we think yeah. of assessment without testing, then that's a different kind of problem. The, and the idea is that we need to think of that as all of the ways in which we can gather evidence. We basically have assessment because we cannot see learning. Mm -hmm. I, I don't care what the neuro side. Nowadays, we have this neuro thing or this data thing where some people claim that they're able to actually see it happen, that you have this uh, hormone and this, I can put a probe in your head and and see your brain functioning and all that that's we, we're not there uh, so i cannot see that whether you can communicate in english or not to what degree you can do it i cannot mm -hmm. see whether you know this whether this is part of your active of your or your passive knowledge of english whether you recognize this whether you're able to use it in context or whatever so how do i know how do i how do i as a teacher know that you have reached the expectations, that you are making progress, that uh, you have got this and that you're able to move on to the next thing, or that you actually need to step back and review this particular thing that you don't, that you haven't quite mastered, which is getting in the way of your progress. Well, assessment. I have to ask you to do things. I have to look at the way you do them. I have to think about that, and then I make a decision. Whether I do it as a formative assessment thing, as an end of unit test, or as a big test that comes every two, three, five years. All of those, actually. Just do it all. But just do it as often and as much as you can. But not to the extent that you don't teach, that you're only testing, of course. No, absolutely. But because, because then if you don't teach, you are not 
that's not doing assessment either. That is, if, if everything you do is exam preparation, then that's, then that's bad. Uh, because, I mean, it's, um, and that there is, of course, a tendency to do, I mean, the higher, this is, this is human behavior. Uh, if you make something, if you, if you put, let's say, when assessment becomes a form of gatekeeping, becomes the yeah. way you have access to something that you want, then the, uh, the, the educational role of assessment becomes irrelevant. And what matters is to get to the next thing. Yeah. What I mean is um, the moment I have to, if I have to pass a test to, I'm thinking of a good example and, I, and I'm not coming up with one, but uh, when, you, when, when you make a test important enough that it's going to decide whether I get something that I want, it stops being about the learning and it is about how can, how can I get what I want. Why do students cheat in a test? Students cheat in a test because they care about what happens if they pass it more than they care about the learning yeah. or in the thing that they are doing. They're more interested in having a you, certificate you, that says they have a particular level of a language, for example, than actually having that level of a language. Exactly. And uh, a classic, I mean, I'm not going to name names, and but when I say this, uh, everybody listening to this will understand, will, will think of examples of what I'm talking about. Uh, when I work for an organization that basically sells standardized exams. So what do people pay for when they pay for those exams? Some people are paying for an exam. Other people, are pay, others are paying for a diploma. And there is a big difference between what you do when you do that, when you buy, when you pay for one or the other. Uh, it's the same thing. It's the, it's the same experience. It's the same journey for everybody. It's just that it happens differently. So you go to, you see cases of teachers, schools, parents, students that will only sit for an exam when they know they will get an easy A, when they know they will fly through it. Why? Because they want a certificate. They want the, they, they need that certificate for something or they want sort of a gold star for some reason or because, and they will only do it if they are satisfied that they can pass it. Now, if you think of that as an assessment, if I present my student, if I have 20 students, 20 of my students sit for that exam, for an exam, 20 of my students get an A, every single one of them. It's meaningless. Yeah. It doesn't mean anything. Assessment, one of the things that one of the problems with assessment is that very negative words in real life have very positive meanings in assessment terms. So a very good thing, a very positive quality for for any form of assessment is discrimination. It sounds awful, but it is yeah. what it is, because what an exam is supposed to do is discriminate, tell you the difference between people who are good at something or people who have a certain level of skill and people who don't. Yeah. Now, if everybody gets an A, that doesn't discriminate. If everybody fails, that doesn't discriminate. Now, the if I sit 20 of my students for an exam, some of them should get an A, some of them should fail, or maybe all of them will pass, but with different degrees of success. Otherwise, it was the wrong exam. Mm -hmm. Now, but 
if I am thinking of an exam as I want the gold star, I just want a certificate, I want parents to feel proud, of, to feel happy about the school that they, that, or the work that I'm doing as a teacher, uh, I want good news, I don't want any of them to feel frustrated, etc. Then that exam is not going to serve my learning purposes, it's going to be a distraction to my learning. Like uh, a PR so, tool for the parents, basically. Absolutely. And you see teachers and heads of studies at, at schools being very concerned when some students fail for good reason, because that means they will have angry peasants knocking their doorstep with uh, torches and pitchforks. Uh, but actually, that is what is supposed to happen. The test, why did my student, why did this student fail the test? Well, if the test was right and everything, in all the right conditions, the test was the test failed. This student didn't pass yeah. because the test was doing its job. And what and in an ideal world, what that means is that you will think of strategies as a school, as a teacher, to bring to see where that student didn't perform that well. Yeah. To see where it's only, and it's then problematic, I guess, Pablo, when when you have a student who you think or all indications show that they should have passed and they don't, for example. And, and then they that go. is very frustrating and disappointing. And there is a lot of research and there has and there is a lot of work into what go, what happens there. Sort of what can what mm -hmm. can make that happen. Uh, and there are people that simply don't do well in exam conditions because yeah. because of test anxiety because of test anxiety or yeah. it's interesting. I mean uh, some people call it test ease, which is like the the mirror image of test anxiety. So some people feel the the how to man. So you can work on uh, tools to manage that. There is an element of exam preparation that is uh, that is necessary. If mm -hmm. you go and face an exam that you know nothing about and you've never done the kind of tasks that that the exam is going to ask you to do in that sequence in that amount of time then you will be at a disadvantage. Yeah. On the other hand, if you over-prepare for an exam, that will stop you from actually learning, and that will actually possibly uh, give you tools to... In, a not, in an ideal world, it doesn't happen, but, in the, but it can give, you can actually get a too high grade if you over-prepare. Yeah. Sort of, you can do better in an exam than how good you actually are. If you and that's not good either, because then if if someone then starts a university course because of that or starts work, uh, they'll quickly be revealed or they'll quickly reveal to themselves that they don't have the sufficient level of a language to be able to understand or to be able to operate or function. In terms of learning, uh, with assessment, it's this. Uh, it's going to sound facile when I say it, but crime doesn't pay. So imagine, mm -hmm. imagine that like you said i'm going i'm going to study i i need this exam because i need this job or i need this exam because i need to go and study in another country so what's going to happen imagine that let's not think of any let's think of magic i get the 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 fairy godmother comes and i ask my fairy godmother to just give me the certificate okay i need a certificate that says i passed this exam or someone now, pays for it that's it no 
I, I, I didn't we want won't to say go that, there. You pay for it. <laughs> we won't go there, but you pay for it. Your, your twin brother uh, does the test instead of you. Something happens. But let's say that you get the exam without having any of the skills that go into it, but you have the key that will open the door. Yeah. Okay, you get the key that will open the door. You open the door. You go to the university or wherever. You go and you get the job. What's going to happen is you will find yourself unable to, to do that. I mean, people who this has happened. Again, I'm not going to name names, but uh, with the pandemic, uh, there are universities that started accepting basically anything you can bring in terms of uh, student credentials or language learning credentials, because mm. many of the formal exams were basically stopped from being administered. Right. Right. Uh, so now uh, imagine now what imagine that you get something a bit of paper or a d digital certificate that says you have that level of English and you actually don't. And then you go to the university, you spend a lot of money, you devote two years of your life, you move away, you do a massive change in your life. And then you cannot understand the classes. You cannot write the assignments. You cannot read the content. You can you don't do what you simply cannot function in that environment. You're going to be frustrated. You're going to be stressed. You're going to fail. Or in any case, you will find a very, very steep journey. You get yeah. the job. You don't have the English level, but you have the you somehow the fairy godmother gave you the certificate. You're not going to last in that job. You're not going to be able to do the job. Uh, you become a doctor and the fairy godmother gave you your doctor license. You people end up dead. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Fortunately, that doesn't happen normally when it comes to languages. Uh, there are very few critical. It does. It does. Actually, I mean, there are very few critical life or death uh, language language examples, but they but there are. Uh, oh, pilots is one. I was going uh, to actually say that there's a, I can't remember the name of the book, but there was an example of miscommunication that caused a pilot of a plane to crash into a mountain. Uh, mistake. I mean, language, language errors. Uh, uh, people who work in aviation, they document these things, and there are specific, and there are many. Uh, yeah. Plane crashes that happen because of miscommunication. Interesting thing. Many times the cause for that is uh, English native speak English as a first language pilots communicating with control towers using language that was standard English but not standard aviation English. Right. So using something like an idiom or using using a phrase that was not standard and which the control tower couldn't understand because it was not part of the standard context. It is one of these cases where actually being a first language user of english without an awareness of english as a second or other language uh, speakers and their needs is going to do is going to do everybody a disservice but then you have things like yeah uh, uh, forensic linguistics uh, the area of translation for courts is a critical example uh, there are specific exams for nurses and doctors studying english right. because that is a case you are in a you are in an operating room be, for people to communicate and to understand each other is literally life or death. There aren't many examples of that, but there are some. <laughs> of course, of course, yes. That's really interesting. 
So Pablo, I'm, I would like to talk to you about this idea of trying to um, compare between different countries. So in other words, the PISA, the organization um, that yep. uh, does a lot of this comparative analysis between different countries' educational systems and has become very, you know, increasingly mm -hmm. more important, has launched foreign language assessment. I'd like to get your take yep. on that uh, and whether you've seen that a lot of countries are actually signing up for it at the moment or not, and whether you think it's a good thing, et cetera. So uh, PISA, PISA FLA, PISA Foreign Languages is coming in the 2025, is doing a pilot in the tw PISA 2025. So uh, about a year and change from now, we will see that exam administered. In about three years, we're supposed to be looking at the first results. Not many countries have signed up for that. Uh, in the Americas, for instance, it's three that I'm aware of. Uh, not sever, not as not a lot of take up in other parts of the world, and the idea is that this is uh, an English exam now, but they're going to start incorporating other languages further on. I mean, when you think of PISA processes, they happen over decades. They develop over, I mean, because PISA happens every four years, and then making changes is done incrementally, and it's a very large scale thing, so everything happens slowly. Uh, and of course, you have a whole controversy about anything that PISA does. So um, that's a very, which is where, where I think your question is going. I think PISA Foreign Languages is going to bring a very positive thing, which is that for what we are going to have a reliable, for the first time, a reliable tool, or at least a well documented tool that is implemented in a well documented follow a well-documented methodology in across a country with representative samples or at least with samples of students with samples of candidates who were selected following some methodology and then that will actually be for once I would say for the first time a meaningful thing to say about language learning in different countries I have looked at the language policy documents and legislation of the Latin American countries where I worked. Yeah. PISA is going to, PISA is, PISA is absolutely necessary in that sense because it's going to mean that. Now, it's going to come with a number of limitations and the problem with PISA, the problem with assessment in general is that uh, it is, there are many things that happen with assessment that where you can understand them technically, why it happens that way, but then the way the information is used later becomes a completely different beast. And PISA is a great example of that. If you take PISA results and then you put them in the right context, like this was the methodology, this is what they tested, this is what it actually means for this particular group of people, blah, blah, blah. If you put lots of footnotes, then it is a very solid thing. But then when you look at the way people use it to give themselves badges to compare themselves to other countries or to flog teachers for being good enough to say we have the worst students in the western world or things like that uh, how come we are falling in the ranks compared to that that is not a particularly great that is not a use of pizza that the people that make pizza actually yeah support yeah now and can this happen can this happen with PISA foreign languages? I can guarantee that it will. Yeah. Does this mean that PISA, that doesn't mean that PISA shouldn't happen. P 
PISA is necessary because people have been using bad substitutes for it for a really long time, and it's yeah. time that that stops. So, Pablo, this is this is interesting. I, I feel like everything we've talked about, I could talk to you about for a lot longer than we have. The last thing I wanted to sort of touch upon, which is a particular hot topic of mine, is artificial intelligence. And I know that. Oh, AI... I was wondering when you were going to say that. <laughs> Leaving the best for the last, for last. Yeah. <laughs> and I was, I was, I'd really like to hear your take upon how AI is affecting assessment because i know it's being used in all sorts of ways for example yeah. to mark tests including writing and listening and speaking uh tests etc but how else is it sort of affecting the world of assessment massively uh and so first of all some form of very crude forms of ai have been embedded in the way we do assessment since mm -hmm. for as long as we've had assessment. Uh, yeah. One of the things that made multiple choice questions, for instance, popular is that they could be machine corrected to, to massive yeah. scales. It's not the only thing about multiple choice questions, but it is definitely a thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and actually the idea of assessment is that assessment should give you through the constructs and things like assessment rubrics and all that, it should standardize judgment. So it is in a way, not an artificial intelligence because we did it based on humans, but in an ideal world, sort of in, a, in an assessment utopia, every person who is rating a piece of writing, every human who is rating a piece of writing is going to use the same, should be using the same judgment process. Mm -hmm which is impossible, which is humanly, biologically, psychologically, philosophically impossible. But yeah. that is like the utopia. So in a way, assessment is meant to be a standardized intelligence or a very strongly guided human intelligence. Yeah. In that sense, an artificial intelligence is the way we've always been doing it. You could, you might say, we, I am stretching the metaphor by a lot. Oh, but, the way uh, the way it should be done, maybe because this idea of standardization. Yeah, yeah and this is connected with uh, the most important concept in assessment is something called validity, and it's got a million different definitions that no one quite agrees on. And one aspect of that validity is what we call reliability. And reliability basically means that in an ideal world. If I have a recording of a, of a speaking exam and I show it to the different writers, I should get the same score. Yeah. They should give me the same score. Uh, and that if I sit for that exam 15 times, sort of in different, in similar moments, let's say, I should be getting the same score in different versions of that exam. So that that exam is measuring, if you like, uh, my ability and not something else not how much not the rate that i got or not the questions that they asked the specific questions that they asked me and in that sense artificial intelligence is a dream because an artificial intelligence algorithm is the promise is that it is it applies the same uh, the same principles the same standards consistently time and time and time again technically it is one uh, very very powerful rater rating everything. It's not different people applying the same standards, 
in human ways. It is one algorithm, one decision process, judging everybody. So everybody's getting the same. In that sense, it is, a, it is brilliant. Mm. The, challenge, <clears throat> the challenge is well, when, how, if artificial intelligence is going to come to the point where it can do the same judgment processes and understanding of human communication in, in our case, because we are looking at language competence. Uh, so, I mean, there are the way it's being done now with the current generation of artificial intelligence, of artificial intelligence algorithms is uh, where people who work on this can demonstrate, and this is something very demonstrable, that there is a very strong correlation between the results for the same tests, for the same pieces of text, uh, for the same piece of writing. Let's talk about writing because uh, speaking is a lot more complex. But for the same pieces of writing that they give it to a lot of human writers, that they give it to the algorithm that has been trained on the responses from enough people. And I have seen studies from some test builders where actually the algorithm was bang on, let's say bang on or close enough uh, over 90% of the time. Whereas if you compare, which is impressive, if you compare human raters to other human raters, that's, let, that's actually worse. And this is one of the reasons <laughs> yeah. why it, it's not just standardization. I mean, there is a lot happening behind sort of backstage uh, of the of a large scale test in terms of the the writing raters. It's not just that they give me a piece, a, uh, they give me pieces of writing. I send them scores, and that's it. There is compar there is statistical analysis of my grading compared to other people's grading. Uh, some of the pieces of writing will be randomly selected for quality control, so other raters will also be giving them grades. Others, when they are too close to a threshold, so if if I give somebody a score that is one or two points above the pass mark, one or two points below the pass mark, it is quite likely that someone else, a senior rater, is going to have a look at that to make sure that I got it right because there is a margin of error and I was close enough that it would make a difference. So <clears throat> with human rating, there are lots of checks and balances to make sure that it is as good as it can be. Or there should be checks and balances yeah. to make sure that it is as good as it can be. Uh, with artificial intelligence, you get a lot out of the equation because you're applying it. In any case, it is being fair or unfair in a consistent way. It is being, if it is biased, it is, it is always biased in the same way. Yeah. Uh, and, and you can work with that. It's just like when you have a teacher in the staff room who, who you know is really strict on students and they tell you, this student is, is not that good. You know that that means that they're good enough because you yeah. know that teacher is really strict or the opposite. They're very lenient. So yeah. you, you compensate. There are ways yeah. to do that. With the humans and with machines, it's important to understand the bias. With humans and with machines. Exactly. And the challenge is when and how we will get to algorithms or human intelligence, uh, sorry, artificial intelligence engines which do qualitatively the things that are relevant for what we want to test. Mm -hmm. So, because 
multiple choice questions. There is zero analysis in the grading of a multiple choice question. The mm. analysis has been done in the design of the item. Yeah. Now, mm, so who corrects it? Who says B correct, C incorrect is completely irrelevant. If I was working in a language school and I had to grade 100 tests at the end of the year, I would ask my janitors to correct the multiple choice items. I don't need the teacher <laughs> to right. do that. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, so for things like that, okay, for productive skills, it's a different story. I have seen cases where there are test, test producers out there, and yeah. again, no names, but who are, who are openly saying that they develop tests with artificial intelligence. So the multiple choice item is written by is written by is authored by an artificial intelligence algorithm the whole test is okay that might be a bridge too far for where we are <laughs> uh, yeah so, um so there are very powerful things that artificial intelligence is doing for assessment right now and there are many things that and there are massive changes that we will see what if we revisit this conversation in two years, it's going to be a different landscape. Of if course. we revisit this conversation in five years, it's going to be a different universe. Um, yeah. And there Which is, is no exciting and scary. And scary, because there is actually no telling how it will be different. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so, um, in an ideal world, the kind of thing that we would like to see is, as with anything in AI, and I don't want to be the AI in teaching speaker that you see in every in every teacher conference a hundred times a day. Uh, I don't want to be that guy. But in an ideal world, artificial intelligence is going to take care of the things that it does best, so that it frees up uh, human intelligence, and it gives human intelligence better analysis. Think of, mm, I mean. There are ways which are very relevant to language learning where a human mind cannot possibly compete. Corpus analysis. Like if you ask this thing about why do, you, why do some first language, English as a first language teachers supposed to have an edge, the native speaker myth? Well, because they understand language and the way people actually use language, that is actually not true. You, Graham, have been raised in an English-speaking environment, but you are very capable in understanding the way your family spoke, your friends spoke, the people in your town spoke, other people in your country, but not every of the tens of, not every exactly. single one of the tens of millions of people who's, who use that yeah. language, and a, not some of the hundreds. Based on my background and where I've lived, etc., exactly. the people I've spoken to, like everyone. You're does. looking at things, you're looking at, we are always, we humans are looking at, data language through peepholes, through keyholes. Uh, artificial intelligence or has the capacity to absorb enough language to turn that keyhole into a window. So if you look at corpus and you see how many people say arrive in, how many people say arrive at, you can look at millions of writers and people using social media and say 85% of them said I arrive in London, 5% uh, said I arrive at London, others say I arrive on London, and that should settle the, the discussion much better than uh, 
the standard sort of speaker of a language, whatever that means, can. So in that yeah. sense, AI can do amazing things that humans couldn't do for assessment. Let's hope for that. I welcome that. Uh, and I welcome the point where we are confident enough to say that not just the results, but the processes that assessment uses, that artificial intelligence uses to understand production are useful enough that they can replace some human time so that we can use it for making better decisions, teaching people better, using that data to make, to basically the role of assessment, going back to what I said minutes ago, uh, if assessment is a tool to make decisions, then that the, you get the data to, as a human, as a teacher, make better decisions for your learners, guide them better, get them to where they want to go, whatever that is. So if yes. that happens and it's AI, bring it on. Great. So on that note, Pablo, I'm going to run, um, wrap things up. want to thank mm -hmm. you for a fascinating conversation. I feel like we could have probably spoken all day, although both of us, I'm sure, have other things to do. On other things to do the rest of the day. And people have other things to do the rest of the day, except other than listen <laughs> exactly. to us. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for uh, for suggesting we talk. I've really enjoyed catching up with you again. And, and you know, the great thing about, doing this for me is I have opportunities to talk to people like yourself for extended periods of time that normally you don't find that opportunity to talk about particular subjects like this. So thank you very much for that. Thank you for the invitation, Graham. And let's do this again anytime. Definitely. Let's revisit AI and assessment in, in a year's time, for example. Why not? Yeah, it's going to be different in a month. So why wait a year? <laughs> well, yeah, or six months even. Yeah, let's see how it develops. Absolutely. Okay, Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, -face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly, and access actionable data that drives student success. So that brings us to the end of today's Twilight Show. Many thanks to today's special guest, Pablo Toledo, and all of you who joined us live. And that's it for me, uh, from me today. 
There are Teachers Talk radio shows all week on all manner of interesting topics, so please listen in live or to the recordings. And I will hope you will join. I hope you will join me next time at the same time. Bye for now. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.